welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today, it's May Day! This may be the first show I've done on a May Day, possibly. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're in the Mission District, and we're on Ohlone land. And there are several ways folks can learn more about the land that we're on. If you go to ramitash.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com, you can learn about the history of the land here. And also, I want to encourage folks to pay the Shumi land tax, and that's for folks in the East Bay. Uh, but anyone can donate anywhere. And if you go to, if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I land tax, you'll be brought to the Sigorate land trust page, and you can learn more about uh, Ohlone, Ohlone Peoples, and the East Bay. Yes. Okay, so I've had coffee this morning, and I'm talking very quickly. I'm going to slow down a little bit. thought I'd start off with some music. I've got to, as I pretty much always do on the show, or most of the time, and <sighs> p- playing a, a, a wide variety today, I think. And cause I'm feeling a little bit all over the place, as I think many folks are. Some days are, are better than others. They're different than others. Some days I have energy and I do things. Other days I just don't. And the first song, well, first of all, came in and uh, the song that was up that was playing was Velvet Underground, so I left that on. And then uh, uh, a young child, as opposed to old child, I guess, a child named uh, Audrey was doing a cover of Killing in the Name, and that's on Reddit. I found it on Reddit. If you type in Audrey and Killing in the Name, you can find the video there. It's super cute and awesome, and it gives me faith in the next generation. Following that um, was a video that, um, thanks to Lev White for sharing it, and I'm going to bring up the title. You can find it on YouTube. It was uh, uh, Shandia Raga, uh, by Ravi Shankar, which was performed by his daughter and as his, and his students as well. You can find that on YouTube uh, under Anusha Sh- Shankar. Okay, and I'll be playing some more music throughout, including, uh, uh, so before Shelter in Place took effect, I went to the San Francisco Library, as I often do, and I got a few records out. And I haven't been bringing them to the studio just because I've been trying to bring less things in here and just, you know, do a little bit less in some ways. Um, however, one of, I was just, was like, I don't smoke pot anymore, but when I used to either smoke pot or drink, uh, sometimes I would just do things, and afterwards I was like, wow, that was an interesting choice I made. And I feel that way about, even though I was sober, the choices I made, picking up records at the library, I just kind of got like a whole wide variety, because I was like, I have a feeling I'm going to be, this will be, not that, of course, one can find lots of music online, but for, for the record's sake, I was like, I'm going to get a little bit of everything, I guess, or just kind of, so anyway, long story short, one record I got was Megadeth's Peace sells, but who's buying? And I'd heard that song before, but I wasn't as familiar with their their work. I guess. Oh man, I'm just talking a lot. This is what happens when I guess we're uh, indoors a lot and not socializing as much. Is that I feel I'm talking a lot about myself, which I don't usually do on the show. However, back when I was a youngin, I was really into like the glam metal and hair metal, and I think part of it I I blame MTV. You know, I was a kid in the late '80s, early '90s, and that's what was on TV. And then there were these whom I thought, I thought they were attractive men with long hair and, and makeup. And I was like, wow, these, these people are hot. And then, of course, one reads about them in Metal Edge magazine, and you're like, oh, this is, they've got some, there's some problematic uh, beliefs that these folks have. They don't treat women too well. Anyway, but uh, a young person like me was, like, into them, and I liked their music. So I was more into the glam metal than the speed metal, although I did like Metallica as well. Long story short, I get this Megadeth record because I'd heard the song before and I'm always for anti-war music and 
was like, might as well listen to this this music. So I put on the record for the first time yesterday, and I listened to it about like four times maybe. And I didn't bring it into the studio today, unfortunately. But you can find it. And I, you know, the lyrics, most lyrics, I'm like, okay. But I'm really there for the guitar. So I'll be playing the title track from uh, that album later on today. And there we go. Got some news stories coming up, as well as action items that folks can take, as per usual. Helps helps me feel a little bit more engaged in the world, and also a reminder that there's lots of ways that folks can participate in the world. Or share information, lots of things, yada, yada, yada. If you've listened to the show before, I say the same spiel most of the time. Diversity of tactics, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Ooh. And um, what else was I going to say? I was going to say a lot. I had some notes lined up of items I was going to share. There are protests happening right now and a big strike happening. Many companies are striking today and want to send a lot of love and solidarity out to the workers who are on strike and I'll be sharing some information as well. And I haven't sat down yet. I'm going to, uh, I guess, get to some news stories, I suppose. There was something else I wanted to talk about and I just don't, uh, ah, not sure what it's it. What it's what what it is, but we'll we'll get to it at some point. All right. As per usual, I have sanitized the chair, so I was standing for a little bit. Did remember to take my bike helmet off this time, so that's a a plus. Oh goodness, I was gonna. All right, I guess I'll uh, go into some news stories that I have lined up, and then I have a feeling when I think of what I was gonna say or or rant about, I will I will get to it. I do have to say. I think that's part of it is just the, um, you know, a lot of folks are like, things were already in a dire situation for so many people, and this really just makes things that much more clear. And I think something especially is like the wealth disparity here in San Francisco and the empty hotel rooms and the folks that folks who are unhoused are still just not getting the services that they need. And there are some folks who have been placed in, in hotel rooms, which is awesome, and there have been some reports on just how great you know grateful folks are and just how for people who haven't had like been able to sleep in a bed for years or had privacy for years like i mean i don't understand how, why anyone would be against that but there are folks on next door which is like kind of like narc central in a way like i'm i'm still on there just because i feel like i need to get enraged more than i already am and it's so interesting the uh the victim blaming and the like bootlicking on that on that site is just ridiculous and just I, I feel like there's so much when I hear and read from folks who are unhoused they have so much more they're open about their vulnerability and their humanity and the folks on next door it's more just like in general it's they just want to like further criminalize poverty and it's so disgusting I don't, it's, oh, it makes me so angry. Okay, that wasn't the rant I was thinking of, but, and it wasn't really much of a rant, it was more just uh, sharing what I, um, here's a story that I hadn't really read. I subscribe to like a number of mailing lists, as a lot of us do, I guess, and get different information that's not really covered in mainstream or corporate media. And this is one from uh, Resumen English, well, it's Resumen is the name of the, the uh, page, it's Resumen uh, Latino Americano and the Third World, and you can find it at Resumen, that's R-E-S-U-M-E-N dash English dot org. 
and this was an article that was posted yesterday by Bill Hackwell, Cuba responds to the shooting up of their embassy in Washington, D.C. Holy shit, I had no idea this happened. It's interesting how the media decides to focus on, you know, their very leads are focused on, like, certain things and certain events and certain people, yet they don't talk so much about, like, the strikes or, like, anti-leftist actions, which seem to, like, <sighs> happen. I mean, it's, like, so much giving their platforms to the right wing and corporate interests, and it makes me so angry. So early this morning, this was again yesterday, at least one assailant sprayed the front of the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. with rounds from an AK-47 assault rifle. D.C. Metro Police arrested Alexander Alazo, 42, of Aubrey, Texas, on the scene. In a police report obtained by the Associated Press, the assault was described as a suspected hate crime. One of the rounds hit the statue of Cuban national hero Jose Marti that was only dedicated last July first in the front yard of the embassy. The official website of the Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs reported that no staff members suffered an injury as all were safely protected, although the building was damaged. The ministry went on to remind the U.S. that it is the obligation of states to take all appropriate measures to protect the premises of diplomatic missions accredited in their country against any intrusion or damage and to avoid disturbing the peace of a mission or violating its dignity. There have been no response from the State Department as of yet. Ironically, this comes a day after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo continued the lies against Cuba by once again attacking Cuba's COVID international medical brigades. Pompeo used the occasion to criticize and threaten countries who have made agreements with Cuba for the medical professionals to come and help to stop the pandemic. Yes, this country, as in the U.S., is so fucking backwards in so many ways. One example would be how they decided the Blue Angels were like, we're going to support the healthcare workers by flying our fucking jets over overhead. Yeah, that, who the fuck does that help? Who? It actually makes things worse considering so many folks have PTSD and it's like the noise and it's just the pollution and it's awful. People need protective gear. People need housing and food and health care. Debt relief. People don't need fucking jets flying overhead. It's fucking nonsense. Anyway, so yeah, they're upset because I guess Cuba's going around uh, with their doctors helping people. It's so clear right now. I don't, okay. A deep breath. Okay. Where was I? Yes, I got so enraged I lost my place, which happens sometimes. Okay. In the same press conference, Pompeo congratulated Brazil, Bolivia, and Ecuador for expelling Cuban doctors who had been working in the most remote remote parts of these of those countries. Sadly, these are the three countries with the highest rates of COVID nineteen cases, highest rates of COVID deaths, with the most overwhelmed national healthcare systems in the Western Hemisphere. The embassy attack comes in an atmosphere of aggressive hatred that is constantly percolating into the public from the Trump administration against Cuba. On July 20th, 2015, the Cuban people were so proud to finally, to finally have an embassy in the U.S. and now cannot help but be deeply offended. Former First Secretary of the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C., Miguel Fraga, put that sentiment in this way on his Facebook page. I'm trying not to write from outrage. I firmly believe hate is not the answer, but I can't stop thinking that silence isn't the answer either. The aggression against the headquarters of the Cuban embassy in the United States of America is a cowardly, unjustifiable, and reprehensible action. This is no time to rush to conclusions, but sadly, the history of bilateral relations between Cuba and the United States of America tells us that only hatred and frustration can be motives of this despicable act. The reoccurring sequel of the permanent de demonization campaign against Cuba 
and it's a vile attempt to justify the cruel sanctions that for more than half a century have been aimed at harming the entire Cuban people. This action constitutes a new terrorist act. It is one more. Painfully, we know and remember all the others that have preceded it. Those responsible do not learn that our determination is increased in the face of every one of these cowardly episodes. International law requires the government of the United States of America as a duty to ensure the security of the headquarters and diplomatic personnel accredited to their nation. It's obvious failure to avoid yesterday's attack from happening and its total silence so far or lack of condemnation of the fact constitutes a dishonor that the people of the U.S. do not deserve, most of whom support improving bilateral relations between our country. We are irritated by the images released after the attack, especially the one where one of the projectiles impacted the statue of our national hero, Jose Marti. But when it comes to our Marti, nothing and no one can harm him. His ideas continue to inspire a noble people who continue to fight to conquer all injustices. And the source is from uh, Resumen English. So again, you can find this article at resumen-english.org, um, and it was written by Bill Hackwell yesterday, April 30th. Oh, Lordy. Okay. And oh, just sighing a bit. Today. Appreciate it. I know it's, uh, oh, that's right. I wanted to provide a trigger warning. I haven't done that on the show in a minute. And some of the stories we'll, we'll, we'll be getting to uh, are going to be difficult in, in many ways. So did want to share that. I'm going to take a moment to get the rest of the articles up and going. I'm going to play another song I heard on The Current, which is the Minneapolis Public Radio station this morning. Uh, this is Wish the World Away by American Music Club.
welcome back. Got some news stories. So there's historic mass strike happening today. This is an article from Vice. It's, it's also covered in several other publications. Uh, this was written by Lauren Cowery Gurley, and it came out on April 29th. On May 1st, frontline workers at some of the biggest corporations in the country will lead a mass strike action, asking customers to boycott Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, and Target. And also a note that workers at Trader Joe's are also striking in solidarity. I've heard. A series of work stoppages, sick outs, and protests in recent weeks will culminate on Friday, May 1st, in a historic strike organized by frontline workers at some of the country's largest corporations. Workers at Amazon, Whole Foods, Instacart, Walmart, FedEx, Target, and Shipt say they will walk off the job on May 1st to protest their employees' fail employers, excuse me, their employers' failure to provide basic protections for frontline workers who are risking and losing their lives at work. Meanwhile, these same companies are making record profits. In a flyer circulated widely on social media, organizers of the so-called May Day general strike implore customers to boycott Whole Foods, Amazon, Target, and Instacart on May 1st. It's more powerful when we come together, Chris Smalls, a lead organizer of the May 1st walkout, who was fired from Amazon's Staten Island Fulfillment Center after staging a walkout on March 31st, told Motherboard. We formed an alliance between a bunch of different companies because we all have one common goal, which is to save the lives of workers and communities. Right now isn't the time to open up the economy. Amazon is a breeding ground for the virus, which is spreading right now through multiple facilities. While we respect people's right to express themselves, we reject irresponsible blah, blah. Okay, that's the spokesperson from Amazon. I'm not going to quote them because why should I? In early April, Vice News obtained a leaked memo from an internal meeting of Amazon leadership, which described a campaign to smear the fired warehouse organizer Smalls, calling him not smart or articulate as part of the PR strategy to make him the face of the entire union organizing movement. Led by Smalls, dozens of organizers have been planning the logistics of the walkout over Zoom calls in recent days. Since the pandemic broke out, retail, warehouse, and gig workers have coalesced around the similar list of demands. Personal protective gear, health care benefits, paid leave, and hazard pay, making it natural for them to coordinate a mass action. We have workers at more than 100 stores who have agreed to participate, and some stores were enough people to call out uh, to shut stores down. Adam Ryan, a Target worker in Christianburg, Christiansburg, Virginia, and lead organizer of the walkout at Target, told Motherboard, we're trying to echo calls for a general strike. We want to shut down industry across the board and push back with large numbers against the right-wing groups that want to risk our lives by reopening the economy. On May 1st, a day historically celebrated globally by the left as International Workers' Day, or May Day, small business owners and right-wing groups will stage Reopen America rallies in cities around the country, including Washington, D.C. and Chicago. The so-called May Day general strike is the culmination of a series of strikes led by workers at companies like Whole Foods, Amazon, and Instacart since the pandemic began. The organizers at the forefront of the recent labor unrest form the face of the country's resurgent labor movement non-union, underemployed, and precarious workers who have taken things into their own hands to demand changes and organize their co-workers in absence of a union primar primarily over social media and encrypted messaging apps like Signal and Telegram. Worker-led online groups such as Whole Worker, Target Workers Unite, and the Instacart Shoppers National Facebook Group, with thousands of members spanning the country, have been years in the making, but have experienced unprecedented growth during the pandemic, organizers say. While the mass strike action might not be enough to shut down society, the collective action certainly echoes the calls for a general strike, a coordinated work stoppage across business and industries in pursuit of a common goal, the likes of which have not been seen in the United States since World War II. 
The planned mass strike was in part seeded at the grocery delivery app Instacart, which recently became profitable for the first time since its founding in 2012. According to a report in The Information, on March 30th, thousands of Instacart workers went on strike to demand protective gear, $5 hazard pay per order, and the expansion of paid sick leave to high-risk workers. Following Instacart walkout, Whole Foods workers and Target's delivery app Shipped workers staged their own strikes, making similar demands. Amazon workers at warehouses in Staten Island, Detroit, Chicago, and most recently, Shakopee, Minnesota, have staged their own walkouts. The demand for Instacart, Amazon, Whole Foods, and shipped strikes on May 1st remain largely the same as they did during the initial strike actions, as companies have largely resisted providing workers efficient paid leave, protective gear, and hazard pay. It's very important for us to similarly positioned workers to come together for demands that are pretty universal, Vanessa Bain, the lead elite organizer, elite, excuse me, elite organizer of the Instacart walkout told Motherboard, in addition to building broader worker power, the point of our mass strike action is to bring this to the attention of the politicians and policymakers. We need them to address our demands now, and the fastest way to ensure that this happens is for companies to feel pressured into doing it. Following the March 30th Instacart strike, workers did claim a victory when the company agreed to provide workers with face masks and hand sanitizer, which was one of their demands. But workers say their supplies are frequently damaged and low quality. Meanwhile, Instacart organizers say workers cannot access paid COVID-19 sick leave because Instacart does not accept doctor's notes. The protective gear they've offered us is a joke, and the paid leave they've promised us is really hard to get, which many workers don't have which many workers don't have health insurance and cannot afford to go to the doctor, Bain added. May Day is the day you don't go to work or buy things or pay rent. To consumers, we're saying, don't buy from these companies on May 1st. Don't empower them with your dollars. That's what we need for an effective general strike. At the Target-owned delivery app, Shipped, which has been criticized by its workers for its culture of censorship and retaliation, the action marks the second time workers have walked off the job this month. On April 7th, shipped workers organized the first walkout since the company's founding in 2014. Shipped workers have demanded $5 hazard pay per order and the expansion of paid leave for high-risk workers and those with doctor's notes. It is unconscionable that shipped is asking workers to get letters from public health officials in order to get paid leave, Willie Solis, a gig worker in Dallas who is organizing the walkout at shipped, told Motherboard. They are asking us to jump through hoops when we're sick, so we're demanding that they expand their policy. At Whole Foods, a subsidiary of Amazon, workers will also make many of the same demands as their first strike, guaranteed paid sick leave to those who wish to stay home. The reinstatement of health care coverage for part-time workers, which was revoked in 2019, and the closure of stores when employees test positive for coronavirus until they can safely reopen. The group Whole Worker, which is coordinating the Whole Foods strike, has created a running tally of positive cases at stores currently at 253 cases and two deaths at 132 stores across the United States. Tyler Robinson, excuse me, Tyler Robertson, a lead organizer of the walkout who helped found the group Whole Worker in 2018, told Motherboard that social media and messaging technologies have played an important role in building a mass movement at Whole Foods stores from Texas to California to New York in recent years. These tools have become even more important at a time when workers cannot organize in real life. We've built this using free tools like Telegram, social media, and Google Docs. We don't have unions, 
but one of the advantages for the new labor movement have has been free tools. We haven't spent any money organizing, Robertson told Motherboard. What I've seen in the past two months, I have never seen before. It's a mass awakening of workers. And I also want to note in the middle of the article, if you work for any companies in the article and have a story to share, um, they would love to hear from you. You can reach out to Lauren, who's the author of this piece, at lauren.gurley at vice.com. And that is L-A-U-R-E-N dot G-U-R-L-E-Y at vice.com or on Signal at 201-897-2109. Again, on Signal, 201-897-2109. And you can check out this article at vice.com. Okay. I am going to now play uh, that Megadeth song I was talking about. And... Take a take a deep breath, of course, because yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. And uh, I've got so many tabs open that it's taken just a little bit to get this all ready. So here we go. I don't believe in God. No. This is, uh, and this is why it behooves me to bring in the records next time. This is a mashup with uh, Buckface's quotes. And uh, I'm going to, let's see if we can find the uh, actual track for it. Here we go. Yeah. 
so much better. Really fun. Okay, next up is a super corporate uh, entity. However, it's good news. This is from Austin, Texas. Uh, CBSAustin.com. Austin, Texas. Austin City Hall was vandalized. Pro worker message. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Goodness. How how can I sleep knowing that there's a, a pro worker message out there? Oh my. CBS Austin crews found red paint splattered across the glass doors into the building, as well as two messages spray painted on the wall and seating area facing Cesar Chavez. One reads, May 1st, International Workers' Day with a hammer and a sickle, while another reads, U.S. imperialism is the virus, socialist revolution is the cure. And they show pictures as well. And the police are upset about this because I guess, you know, the folks with guns going into <laughs> government buildings and uh, folks being denied health care and not having uh, adequate savings to take care of themselves and their families, that's – that's uh, not a big deal, but folks spray painting the truth on a building is like, that's rough. Okay, so good. I'm glad that folks did that. And next up, going in a very random order from the tabs that I have open, I did some planning, a little bit of planning, a little more than usual, but the segues are a little bit rough today. This is for, um, there's lots of ways that folks can help out. I'll again share the live document I've been sharing for the last month, two months. How long are we doing this? I don't know. It's bit.ly forward slash COVID-19 collective care. And that's like a live document about mutual aid around the world focused, I think, mostly in the U.S. However, there's just a variety of locations and a variety of ways that folks can either provide assistance, ask for assistance, communicate, find information, share information, edit the document. There's a lot of good info there. So I do want to share that for folks. Again, bit.ly forward slash COVID-19, the number 19, collective care. And this is something else. This is the Transgender District COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund that's based here in San Francisco. The Transgender District's COVID, COVID excuse, excuse me, I guess that coffee, I'll, I will tell a little bit about myself. This is really not that personal. But I, the days I don't have coffee, I'm just very sluggish. And then I was making the, like, okay, I should probably start drinking coffee again. And it wasn't very strong. And today I was like, I'm going to make sure it's really strong. And I was like, whatever. And then I get here, and I'm like, la, 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 la. And then suddenly, it's it's really hitting me. Wow. Okay. The Transgender District's COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund is to assist the trans community with a cash stipend of $150 during this shelter-in-place to help our community get the things they need to get through this unexpected life event. If you identify as transgender or gender nonconforming and are in need of assistance, please apply to our relief fund using the form below. You will also need to submit a W-9 available here, and they provide a link. And you can find this at transgenderdistrict.com, and then it's like COVID-19 relief. But you can go to the transgenderdistrict.com. You will find this emergency relief fund. And, um, yeah, I can read a little bit about this. The transgender district, formerly known as Compton's uh, Transgender Cultural District, which, again, is, is you know, bizarre since Gene like it was Compton's cafeteria. However, it was, like, the, the people who were customers at the cafeteria who – uh, engaged in the, the riot against the police in 1966. Okay, uh, The first legally recognized transgender district in the world encompasses six blocks in the southeastern Tenderloin and crosses over Market Street to include two blocks of 6th Street. The transgender district, with the support of our community, is pleased to be able to reopen the COVID-19 emergency relief fund. We have so far been able to support 70 trans folks, both locally and nationally. It is very important to us that our community is taken care of. 
The mandated shelter in place authorized by Gavin Newsom and Mayor Breed has been extended and keeps being extended. The relief fund is to assist the trans community in the Tenderloin neighborhood and broader San Francisco area, most of whom are living in shelters, SROs, or motel rooms when they can afford it. We want to help our community get the things they need to get through this unexpected life event. The Transgender District is offering small cash stipends to assist. If you are in need of assistance, please take a moment to fill out the form below. The cash stipends of $150 are intended to support transgender people in getting groceries, supplies, medications, or hot food. And, uh, of course, to use funds is at the full discretion of the recipient during this time. You can also donate if you'd like to. There's a link as well on this page. So again, if you go to transgenderdistrictsf.com forward slash donate, you'll be brought to the um, page where you can donate to this organization. So please do donate if you're able as a trans person, sending lots of love, especially lots of love and solidarity out to fellow trans GNC folks, intersex folks out there in the world. Okay. Next up, um, some positive news. Uh, occasionally, there are some positive news stories. I'm getting to them. And this actually comes from Cincinnati. I said, actually, wow. Okay, this comes from Cincinnati. And again, I feel like sometimes, I, you know, I have my criticisms about electoral politics, and every now and then there's some good that comes of it. So wanna, wanting to share that when, that when that happens and when folks organize. So this is a politi political report. This comes from theappeal.org, which is a really informative website I encourage folks to check out. I'm talking so fast. Oh, my gosh. I only had one cup of coffee this morning. And then I had a very huffing and puffing all the way down. This is the the big bad wolf who huffed and puffed. That was me on my bike today. Um, I am <laughs> not exercising as much as I used to by any means. And each, and I get that my bike tires are maybe a little bit, they need a little bit more air for sure. And also, I was huffing and puffing through my bandana today. Woo. <laughs> the 15-minute bike ride, I was just, whew, it was a bit rough. Okay. Huffing and puffing. Okay, this is written by Daniel Nekanyan and came out on April 29th, 2020. Political report, Cincinnati voters oust sheriff who cooperated with ICE and championed a new jail. Fuck ICE, fuck new jails. That's my perspective and many people's perspectives. And the solution to the problem of mass incarceration is certainly not more mass incarceration, said Charmaine McGuffey, who won this sheriff's primary. In neighboring Greene County, voters rejected the, a sales tax increase that was meant to fund the construction of a bigger jail. In two southern Ohio counties, voters signaled on Tuesday that local officials de dealing with jail overcrowding should focus on reducing incarceration rather than championing expensive proposals to build bigger and shinier jails. In Hamilton County, Cincinnati, Charmaine McGuffey won the Democratic primary for sheriff, ousting incumbent Jim Neal by a resounding margin, 70% to 30%. The tense campaign centered on Hamilton County's poor jail conditions, Neal's ties to ICE, and the circumstances of McGuffey's departure from Neal's office in 2017. People want to embrace criminal justice reform, McGuffey told the appeal. Political report... Oh, called the... Okay, political report is the... Uh, side uh, project of the appeal. Okay. McGuffey told the appeal project report when asked how she interprets her large win. People are not embracing any more costs to incarceration. People understand that now is the time for us to get our fiscal health house in order and morally to stop mass incarcerating people. When Neil 
first came into office in 2013, McGuffey, a longtime sheriff's deputy, was promoted as jail director. She held the position until 2017. During that stretch, the, sh the sheriff's office was considerably improved the jail's dismal compliance with state standards, but overcrowding, poor conditions, and allegations of police brutality remained big issues. Neal advocates building a new jail as a remedy to the current jail's overcrowding. But McGuffey opposed the construction of a new jail. The solution to the problem of mass incarceration is certainly not more mass incarceration, she reiterated to the political report on Wednesday. It would enable local officials to look away from over-incarceration, she argues. If there's a new jail, the sheriff doesn't have to pay attention to it because now there's enough room. She told the political report in a March interview in March Okay, uh, and I don't think that is the, a way to create reform. She has proposed reducing arrests and pretrial detention for lower-level offenses and said on Wednesday that as sheriff she would continue doing what she's been doing, and that means bringing real-life opportunities to people who are inside our jails, etc. So there's a few more details in the article, but again, and I think a lot of us are for complete abolition of prisons and jails and also... Uh, better to get evil people out of power so that's a step in the right direction <sighs> all right moving along another weird segue here not a weird segue just a different segue here um for more worker rights here uh defying trump's order nebraska meat packers strike pa national guard replaces striking nurses richmond threatens to fire striking bus drivers this is from payday report and it looks like it's out of tennessee i've never seen this site before paydayreport.com uh, this is written by Mike Elk, and it came out on April 28th, 2020. And there's a photo of Minnesota workers walk off the job at Pilgrim's Pride outside of St. Cloud, Minnesota, and the Greater Minnesota Workers Center. Greetings from the Berg. It's not quite payday yet, but we're switching from our weekly newsletter format to daily strike updates. Before, we'd see two to three strikes in a week. Hence, a weekly newsletter made sense. Now we're dealing with at least two to three strikes a day. So Payday will publish regular, often daily afternoon, excuse me, roundups of the strike and other major labor activity. 151 strikes across the U.S. since March 1st. Our strike tracker is now up to 151 strikes across the U.S. And they have a link. Let me uh, click on that. You'll see many of the strikes listed here and others. So I'm going to check out this site. And as I've mentioned before on the show, Oftentimes, as I'm reading these articles aloud, I'm reading them for the first time, so I'm learning uh, at the same time. So it's the show has been a way of just really kind of f forcing myself to really going beyond the headlines and really read the facts and see patterns and understand more information. Because it is fucking difficult. I definitely have moments where I want to just kind of squirrel away and just not engage with the world and not hear about what's happening and trying to find that balance between being aware of what's happening and not be so involved or so overwhelmed by it that I don't act at all. And I mean, I feel like I've, that's often been the case and now even more so when it's, it's not like, Oh, we all have this. It's there's time at home and also there's so much fear and so many people are losing loved ones and people are afraid of, afraid of this this virus and many folks can't pay rent and many folks are out of work and underpaid and the folks who are going to work are not getting the care that they need and the protection that they need and the pay that they deserve so it's really frightening and especially seeing these you know these right-wing 
folks with their fucking guns going out and, you know, th- they really want to reopen America, but actually they're really just like they want other people to go to work. They're not at looking for themselves to go to work. They're looking for other people to go to work and do the work for them. And we're just seeing even more wealth being distributed upwards to, you know, wealthy people and to these big corporations. And it's just a, a further push of this fucking disgusting capitalism and imperialism. And it's fucking disgusting. Oh, what was my point? I mean, that is my point. Oh, yeah. But so with all this going on in the background and also, you know, worrying about folks and people I care about and also sometimes not having the energy to reach out as much as I would like to and be there for folks as much as I would like to because I'm still trying to take care of myself in a way. And it's so difficult to then, you know, read a, read an article and coming to the station, and cur- it's a reminder that I can read it and it's not really a, a a service like the nurses and the food workers and the folks out there doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting. The very least I can do that I'm able to do at this moment is to continue to share news articles with folks and also remind just like a big sending just using my voice in a way to share what's happening and what's being underreported or not reported at all and to put the truth out there in the universe and to plant some seeds. And also, side note, <laughs> apparently now the U.S. government's like, oh, yeah, by the way, there are UFOs, et cetera, which a lot of folks have been talking about for a while now. And I've been like, yeah, of course it makes sense that there is other life out there than us humans, which are <laughs> – and uh, I don't know if I were uh, a creature from another planet – if I'd w- I mean, the earth is beautiful and there is a lot of humanity and a lot of kindness and a- animals and nature can be beautiful. And at the same time, all this war and destruction is so disappointing and disgusting and sickening. So I don't know what I would do if I, I'd be like, would I want to come to earth? Earth looks beautiful. And also this behavior from a lot of humans is really gross. Maybe I'd want to stay away. Maybe if uh, they have this kind of savior complex as some of us have, me raising my hands, you know, maybe they want to help us somehow protect us from ourselves i don't know but um point is i want to use my voice while i'm here to share this information and just also share the work of journalists out there and the folks who are continuing to write and to share the truth and to speak the truth and to acknowledge that there are so many folks who are fighting right now for a better world for everybody and that's what these strikes are it's ensuring that Everyone, people who are working now and people who are working in the future, get what they deserve. And we're not taught that in this country for the most part. There's not a lot taught about the labor movements. There's not a lot taught about what folks have done, people who have died, given their lives for an eight-hour workday. People have put their lives on the line to ensure that those future generations have a slightly, even slightly easier time existing in this world and of course there's just the the myth of scarcity there's plenty of food and a lot of it gets wasted there's no need for anyone to go hungry in this country or around the world there's no need we have enough there are people who are hoarding resources people who are hoarding their wealth i also wonder what it's going to take and again it's up to me too right i have every (laughs) i can say it but if i don't act on it then what is it what does it really mean what is it going to take? Oh, which speaks, which reminds me, where was it? I read something earlier this morning. I think it was on Twitter. Maybe it was in Georgia. Someone put a guillotine somewhere. 
let me I'll need to go back and find this. Maybe when during the next music break I'll I'll go forward and and find this. And uh, they put it. So that's what we're talking about. There's also another story out there. I won't read the details, but how there are billionaires living in San Francisco, which is just gross. First of all, if you're a billionaire, you already don't care about humanity because you could give away 99% of your wealth and still live really fucking well. And if you've gotten to that level where you have that much wealth, then obviously you don't care about fellow human beings because you could still take care of yourself and then some and ensure that other people have food and housing. And they don't do that. So the majority of billionaires in San Francisco have not donated to any COVID-19 relief efforts, which, of course, is not a fucking surprise. Not a surprise at all. So I'm just putting that out there. Anyway, billionaires, um, ready for folks to organize and go, you know, go against the billionaires. Go against fucking Jeff Bezos, who's still making a shitload of money. I, I'm, Here I am on the sidelines cheering people on. I am. You know, like, I'll make you all sandwiches if folks want to go out and do that. You know, like, I don't see myself necessarily as a fighter. And also, I do believe it has to get done. So I'm putting that out there. Fuck the billionaires. And ready for a mass movement of people to redistribute the wealth. COVID-19 strike wave interactive map. You can find it at paydayreport.com. And each point on the map contains uh, a link to each of the more... Uh, more information on the strike. So far, they've identified over 150 Wildcat strikes that happened since the beginning of March. Several larger strikes like Instacart or Whole Foods happened in multiple cities, and they suspect strikes aren't reporting at all for a variety of reasons and that the numbers are higher than they can track. The map will be updated regularly. You can send updates on new strikes to MELK, and that's M-E-L-K, at paydayreport.com. In some places, workers are simply calling out sick and mass and refusing to show up so bosses shut down their plants. Many areas have no reporters with connections to the labor movement, so many strikes are going completely uncovered. In other places, workers have protested for an hour or two before bosses have agreed to workers' demands. Also, some union leaders are hesitant to get the media involved out of fear of retaliation, so we need to keep sending tips to Payday for our, our strike at milk at paydayreport.com. You can also donate to help cover labor's fight back against COVID-19. They have a link as well. And I also want to say a big thanks to the teachers I've had at City College in San Francisco. And they have a labor and community studies program uh, department. And a couple of the, the classes I took, Organizing for Justice with James Tracy and uh, California Labor History with Fred Glass. I learned so much. And uh, Bill Shields is the, the head of the program. And just there's just a really... Uh, enriched my understanding of the labor movement in in this country. So I want to say thank you to all the teachers out there also for sharing history. I'm going to give my voice a break, find something else I was uh, looking for. <laughs> I'm going to play another song, and let's see which tabs I have open. we got a lot more news stories to get to. All right, no more Megadeth for now. And play that song. So let me bring up this next page here this is a song called dream all day that i heard once again on the current this morning
Big Moon with Your Light. And before that, we heard Ivy with Wish It All Away. And before that, we heard The Posies with I Could Dream All Day. I never finished that uh, last <laughs> article I was reading because I went to a, a sidebar. So I'm going to share a little bit of that right now. Okay, so Trump. this is again from paydayreport.com. And the title of the article was uh, Defying Trump's Order, Nebraska Meet Packers Strike. And there's a few other articles within that and so earlier today and this was earlier this week although of course the days feel like months these days and vice versa april 28th 2020 so earlier on april 28th uh fuckface uh president fuckface to be specific um and i should say the current president fuckface because we have a lot of previous president fuckfaces uh, announced that he uh, intended to use the power of the federal government and the Defense Production Act to keep meat processing plants open throughout the United States. The move comes as massive outbreaks with hundreds of workers have hit meatpacking plants throughout the U.S. As a result, scores of meatpacking plants have closed because of outbreaks. Strikes and mass sickouts at a dozen meatpacking plants throughout the U.S. have led to the closure of additional plants. It's unclear how Fuckface intends to use the Defense Production Act to force meatpacking processing workers back into the assembly line. Organized labor immediately denounced the move. We only wish that this administration cared as much about the lives of working people as it does about meat, pork, and poultry products. <laughs> when poultry plants shut down, it's for deep cleaning and to save workers' lives, said Stuart Applebaum, president of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. If the administration had developed meaningful safety requirements early on as they should have and still must do, this would not even have become an issue. In defiance of fuckface, I'm just going to just start calling him that from now on if that makes sense. Initially, we were all doing 45, and now I think fuckface is uh, probably more a more accurate name for him. Nebraska Meatpacker, and again, it's really the whole administration too because I know it's not just this one person. If it was just this one person doing harm, then it wouldn't be an issue, but it's all systemic. So I'm wanting to acknowledge that as well. Nebraska Meatpacker walks off the job at Smithfield. The prospect of meat shortages and off and also, I mean, I'm not someone who eats meat, so I'm like, uh, but also like just the factory farming is just so fucking gross. Okay. 
the prospect of meat shortages, which increasingly seem likely, according to experts, as dozens of plants have been shut down by outbreaks or strikes, would be politically embarrassing to fuckface. Shortly after fuckface, <laughs> I'm just makes because puts a smile on my face to call him that. Shortly after fuckface announced his intention to issue his executive order, more than 50 meat packers walked off the job at after 48 coworkers tested positive for COVID-19 at Smithfield's plant outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. The Nebraska action follows a wildcat strike Monday at Pilgrim's Pride meatpacking plant in Cold Spring, Minnesota. Workers remain frustrated that the company hasn't done enough to inform them of coworkers testing positive for COVID-19. With workers going on a strikeout, fearing for their lives, it's unclear how Trump will stop these workers. Oh, God, I said his name. No. This is like Simon says when you say the wrong thing. I should, you know, I disqualify myself. Okay. All right, it's unclear how Fuckface will stop these workers from shutting down more plants. Uh, Pennsylvania National Guard called in to replace striking nurse. Oh, my. Fuckface said some governors may call in the National Guard to replace frontline workers. After 19 patients died of COVID-19 at a nursing home in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, nurses went on strike to protest unsafe conditions. Today, Democratic Governor Tom Wolf, I guess not the writer unless, I mean, who knows, stranger things have happened, uh, sent the PA National Guard to man the facility, a threat that could be applied to other facilities where nurses are striking. Also, uh, in Illinois, SEIU Healthcare threatens to strike at 40 nursing homes on May 8th. In a sign of how widespread nurse strikes might become, SEIU Illinois Healthcare announced that they overwhelmingly passed a strike authorization vote to go on strike on May 8th. My coworkers and I have told our management that we need more PPE and we need to know who has the virus in our facilities so we can help keep everyone safe. But they seem more focused on protecting their profits than protecting people. That's a theme for this country, unfortunately, uh, said Francine Rico at Villa of Windsor Park in Chicago in a news release. Next up, Richmond threatens to fire striking bus drivers. And this is, I believe, in Richmond, Virginia. <sighs> Uh, as employers are unable to stop the massive tide of strikes gripping the nation, more employers may attempt to discipline employees. On Monday, more than half of all Great Richmond Transit Company, GRTC, bus drivers called out sick to protest on safe conditions. In response, to the, to, in response, the head of the Greater Richmond Transit Company threatened to fire bus drivers who called in sick Tuesday. The union protested the move. Our union has had 32 members across the country die after contracting the virus, and hundreds have become infected. GRTC workers who are sick or have symptoms of COVID-19 should be able to stay home without being fired, said ATU Local 1220 President Maurice Carter. GRTC's wrong-headed decision to threaten to fire workers who call in sick is disgusting and endangers the communities that my coworkers and I proudly serve in these difficult times. The union has listed 10 demands that they expect G. RTC to meet. As of late Tuesday afternoon, GRTC has yet to announce any firings of bus drivers. And again, they have a link here where you can donate to help keep tracking the strikes. And you can send tips to ML, excuse me, M-E-L-K at paydayreport.com and you can donate as well. I'm going to start following them on Twitter. Let me see if I can do that right now so I don't forget. I'm going to actually tweet that. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, by all means, I mostly retweet news stories uh you can follow me at r-o-m-a-n-r-i-m-e-r -E and it's will show up as uh we need healthcare, not warfare is what i've edited the name to be a few months ago and I'm keeping that for the time being okay so that's a lot of news next up 
Um, there's an article. I'm not going to go into the full. Uh, my, my voice is getting a little bit tired. Mission Local, Mayor Breed, Mayor London Breed blew off unanimous legislation to put homeless in ho- hotels. Yes, she can do that. That was written by Joe Eskenazi, and that was came out on April 28th, 2020. And I'll read the first few paragraphs here. As of Monday, San Francisco has placed 621 people in shelter-in-place rooms and city hotels. This, it would appear, is the extent of vulnerable, likely homeless people who have been proactively placed in rooms before being sickened by COVID-19 or awaiting a diagnosis. That's a lot of people, but not in the context of the crisis we're in and not in the context of the weeks of agitation to take people off the streets and get them in hotels before they get sick and get everyone else sick. What's more, it's a good bet most of these 621, there's an asterisk there, uh, people aren't from the streets, but have been plucked from the shelter system. If you were homeless on the street before, you all but certainly are now. In the midst of a pandemic and with the shelters shut to new residents since late March. On April 14th, the Board of Supervisors passed emergency legislation mandating by an 11 to 0 vote that the city by April 26th obtain 8,250 hotel rooms with 7,000 earmarked for the homeless. As of April 27th, the city had obtained... 2,741 hotel rooms. Of these, 1,130 were sitting empty. Mayor Lyndon Breed has shown little interest in proactively placing vulnerable and or homeless people in hotel rooms before they get sick and spread the disease. That was never her plan, regardless of what all 11 supervisors wanted, and to her credit, she's been very candid about this. And that's okay. Whether it's okay morally and okay as a competent expression of government functioning is, is one thing, but legally... That's okay. It comes as an apparent surprise to some members of our board, but the mayor was not bound to implement this law, regardless of whether all 11 soups voted for it, regardless of whether Christ descended from heaven and cast the 12th vote. At Mission Local, they've been noting this all along. The term veto-proof majority was irrelevant here because the mayor of San Francisco is not bound to spend the money underlying this legislation, and not just this legislation, regardless of how many legislators voted for it. I guess I'm going to read the entire article because I'm just <laughs> going through it. This has long been the case. Willie Brown did this. Gavin Newsom did this. Your humble narrator first used this, a narrator being the author of this piece, not me, uh, used this line about Christ ascending from heaven to describe Newsom doing this a decade and change ago. For good or ill, Christ did not descend in the interrogum nor opt to vote on any <laughs> legislation. Our soups are going to ag- agitate about this at around noon. This previously happened on Tuesday. They're upset, and it's not hard to understand why, but regardless of anyone's feelings on leaving homeless people, I'm going to start using the word unhoused instead of homeless, people um, out on the streets in plagued times because housing them would be hard. Uh, We have not reached some manner of constitutional crisis here. London Breed is not going to put on a jaunty white military... Okay, da-da-da. All right. So the article goes on a little bit further. The rationales Breed has posted for not putting low vulnerable people into hotels, however, aren't outlandish. It should be expensive, as and the city is about to face its most dire budget season. Since the Hoover administration, there are security issues in hotels where staff cannot see what you're doing in remote corners of upper floors. Um, these are not insignificant obstacles. They're certainly sufficient to prevent the timely enactment of legislation. The mayor has no desire to enact. see it's a lot more going on here as well 
I'm not listening outside. Okay, so you can read more there. And there were... Um, I've heard... Uh, there were protests outside Mayor Breed's house. And... In order to get folks, in prote protesters staged Diane outside mayor's house over homeless hotel policies. So this is from sfweekly.com, written by Noala Bashari, and this came out yesterday, April 30th. Uh, homeless advocates, medical professionals, and faith leaders gathered outside London Breed's home Thursday evening. More than 50 people gathered outside Mayor Breed's house in Lower Haight Thursday evening in a call for more hotel rooms to be opened up for people experiencing homelessness. Half a dozen people in masks lay in the streets, staging a die-in, while nurses, doctors, homeless advocates, and faith leaders held signs and spoke into microphones, megaphones, gazing up at the mayor's apartment. This action comes three weeks after 92 residents of a massive homeless shelter in Soma, MSC South, tested positive for COVID-19. This week, two, week, two cases were discovered at one of the city's navigation centers. The Coalition on Homelessness, Health Professionals, and Faith in Action, all of which helped organize the protest, sounded the alarm back in March that the city's homeless population would be disproportionately affected by the virus unless people were able to access housing where they could self-isolate and quarantine. At Thursday's protest, Dr. Noel Martinez said that not a day goes by where she doesn't witness the physical and mental consequences of poverty and lack of housing. While those experiencing homelessness bear witness to our society's greatest faults, our institution's greatest failings, they carry that proof in their bodies, in their muscles, in their bones, in their kidneys, in their hearts, and now their lungs, she said. With this inaction, you are sen sentencing them to yet another insult. We have a photo here. Ian Carrier, an unhoused 38-year-old San Franciscan, recently died after battling what appeared to be COVID-19. He suffered from numerous health issues and spent the last four months in and out of the hospital on dialysis and a ventilator. His family told the New York Times they believe he had an early and undiagnosed case of COVID-19. When Carrier was discharged from the hospital on Monday, he fit the city's hotel room criteria as he was critically at risk for COVID of COVID-19 due to being so medically unstable from his months in the hospital but service providers were told there were no more rooms available, despite the fact that there were approximately 30,000 hotel rooms available in late March. Carrier died 26 hours later in his wheelchair on Hyde and Eddy Streets. In the past three weeks, two people, Jill Dean and Anthony Monro Monroy, have died on the streets while experiencing homelessness. It's unclear if their deaths were COVID-19 related, and similar cases may emerge in the coming weeks. On Thursday morning, news broke that the plan to test every resident of a homeless shelter in San Francisco had been reversed by the city. Breed has repeatedly come under fire from advocates, faith leaders, and other politicians in City Hall over her stark lack of support for San Francisco's unhoused residents during the shelter-in-place ordinance. While the Bay Area has succeeded thus far in flattening the curve, demographic studies clearly show that marginalized populations are being disproportionately affected. The highest rates of infection are in the Latinx Heavy Mission and the Bayview, which houses the majority of the city's black residents. But race isn't the only factor. Health professionals and advocates say massive explosions like that at the MSC South could have been prevented if the city had moved all shelter residents into hotel rooms. To their credit, many of San Francisco's politicians have been working around the clock in an effort to do just that. The Board of Supervisors voted unanimously passed a law earlier this month requiring that the city purchase 8,250 hotel rooms for people experiencing homelessness. But the deadline came and went on Sunday with only 3,000 rooms provided. The criteria to access such a room is strict. You must be over 60 years of age, specifically at risk, or already exposed to the virus. Sam Liu of the, of the oh no. Sam Liu of the Coalition on Homelessness. 
uh, says that the lack of action is essentially sentencing homeless people to death. And in the meantime, thousands of people who live on the streets are left to face the pandemic alone. Reverend Mo Monique Ortiz challenged Breed not just on her policies, but her faith. They are human beings like just you and I. They are beautiful and precious, she said. You are a woman of God, and we are calling you out. Don't blind your eyes and harden your heart anymore. It's unclear if Breed was home during the, the event. No movement was seen behind her curtains, though her downstairs neighbors gathered in the windows to watch the goings-on. Protesters left their handmade signs, most printed on the backs of old Prop C campaign material, on her doorstep. I've seen the good and the bad, said Emmett House, who, ha who used to be homeless before landing a spot in public housing. This is the ugly. So again, you can read that article on, on sfweekly.com, and it was written by Nuala Bishari, and it came out yesterday, April 30th. And if my voice seems to kind of come and go a little bit, it's because I'm trying to do my best to stay, even though I clean the microphone, stay a little bit far from it so I don't touch it, just to be ultra, you know, careful here. And there is the truck going by. Okay, and next up. Oh, I think another music song would be good. So this is a song I hadn't heard before, and the band Chumbawamba often gets made fun of. However, they're fucking anarchists. They have a, they're known as like a one-hit wonder for uh, the song about drinking and stuff. But I, what I remember most about them is that they, when they hit big, they were saying, they are just like, get our album however you can. If you want to steal it, that's fine and just really appreciated that. So I want to say a big thanks to uh, Comrade Christina out there for posting this song a few days ago. And uh, she says, happy when Hitler blew his brains out like the cowardly bitch he was day uh, to all fash. Hashtag follow your leader's example because hashtag will never rest again until every Nazi dies with a link to this song by Chumbawamba, which I hadn't heard before. So I'm going to play that for you now. And uh, maybe another song after that, we'll see how we do. And uh, we'll be back after this. We got some more news stories for you. But history books, they tell of their defeat in 45. But they all came out of the woodwork on, on the day the Nazi died. They say the prisoner of Skanda was a symbol of defeat. Whilst Hess remained in prison, then the fascists, they were beat. So the promise of an Aryan world would never materialize. So why did they all come out of the woodwork on, on the day the Nazi died? The world is riddled with maggots, the maggots are getting fat. They're making a tasty meal of all the bosses and bureaucrats. They're taking over the boardrooms and they're fat and full of pride. And they all came out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died. So if you meet with these historians, I'll tell you what to say. Tell them that the Nazis never really went away. They're out there burning houses down and peddling racist lies. And we'll never rest again. Until every Nazi dies. Thank you so much. 
oh no, I guess my uh, computer ran out of juice. And uh, that's super unfortunate. But that was Patty Smith with People Have the Power. Oh, that's super unfortunate. Don't have the cord with me. So what we're going to do now, I was about to read some more news stories. I'm going to just bring up the, because we're living in the year 2020, we all have several different phones with us, uh, several computers with us. So I'm going to go see if I can read it from my phone because that still has some energy. And I'm shocked. It had 100% when I left the house this morning, and yet it turned off. And I guess what I've learned is to bring the, uh, I'll have to start bringing the powered cord with me next time. So next up, I'm going to read, I'm on several email lists, and I was going to read an email from an awesome organization, the Center for Political Education. They put on a lot of really great events, and they also hold classes, and just it's an awesome organization that folks can um, look into and support. Again, it's called the Center for Political Education. So I'm going to read the email with some information we sent out. Dear friends, happy May Day. As we celebrate International Workers' Day, we think of workers everywhere, those continuing on as usual, those deemed essential and risking infection, and those who are not able to work, including the many millions seeking unemployment relief. Below is some of the news, analysis, and tools that caught our attention since our email last week. They have Friday night forums. Uh, CBE is proud to be collaborating with the Red Nation and Arab Resource and Organizing Center on a series of critical conversations on settler colonialism, U.S. imperialism, and decolonization. Join us this evening for a special May Day installment of Friday Night Forums. Last week's forum, COVID-19 in Indian Country, exposed us to really important information about the impacts of COVID-19 on indigenous communities and how community groups are responding. Check out the recording here if you missed it. Ooh, that sounds good. Um, perhaps I'll play that. And uh, this evening's forum will focus on organizing workers and will feature Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson, Zanae Cortez of National U Nurses United, and Vijay Prashad of Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research, and will be moderated by Rachel Herzing. Uh, you can register. And so if you go to the... Center for Political Education. You sh should be able to find that information there. And also, uh, Rachel Herzing was a guest on this show maybe two years ago. And I met Rachel through a class at uh, City College of, of San Francisco who came in to speak to one of our labor studies classes. So again, please do support uh, Center for Political Education. Lots of really good info. And I'm really interested in hearing this. So what I'm going to do is uh, see if I can play some of what they've shared here and if you hear a crinkling it's because i have the phone in a plastic bag so i don't have to uh continue to sanitize it everywhere i go and uh let's see what we can do it's on youtube you can find it oh goodness this one and here we go it's on youtube friday night forums to COVID 19 with an indian country with jerry daniels Destiny Morris, and Janine Yazzie. And, oh, wait, the submix should be up. I've only been doing the show for six years, over six years now. So let's see. Joining us again for the second installment of Friday Night Forums, um, spending your Friday nights with us here to learn about COVID-19 and Indian country tonight. So Friday Night Forums are a series of critical conversations on settler colonialism, U.S. imperialism, and decolonization, hosted by the Red Nation in partnership with the Arab Resource and Organizing Center and the Center for Political Education. The COVID-19 pandemic is global, and so our response to 
to it must also be global. Friday night forums feature anti-imperialist perspectives and lessons on organizing from around the world with an eye towards decolonizing Turtle Island. So join us next Friday, May 1st, for the third installment of Friday Night Forums, same time, same place, Zoom webinar, where else are you going to be, uh, where we'll be talking about organizing workers during the pandemic. And so just in case you don't know or you have friends who want to join, we're also live streaming tonight on Facebook. Uh, we're live streaming on the Red Nations page, the Arab Resource um, and Organizing Center's page, as well as the Center for Political Education's page. So you can find us three places on Facebook right now. And tonight's webinar will also be recorded and uploaded onto the Red Nation's YouTube channel, and you can share it um, with whomever you need to who might not have been able to make it tonight. So tonight we're discussing COVID-19 in Indian country. Just one week ago, six tribes sued the Trump administration over plans to give for-profit Alaska Native corporations over half of the $8 billion coronavirus aid fund relief package earmarked for tribal governments. That same day, the Trump administration leaked confidential information contained in the applications that tribal nations submitted to receive the funding. Just two days ago, my nation, the Navajo Nation, joined that lawsuit. President Jonathan Nez, he's the president of the Navajo Nation, stated, allocating funds from the Coronavirus Relief Fund to the Alaska Native corporations will severely impact the Navajo Nation's ability to fight COVID-19 and will impact every other tribe as well. The lion's share of media attention about COVID-19 in Indian country has concentrated on the challenges that Native people are facing in the Navajo Nation. It's been very Navajo Nation focused. And this is for a good reason. You know, the Navajo Nation is third behind only New York and New Jersey when it comes to the rate of infection and mortality, a figure exacerbated by the staggering percentage of our relatives who live without electricity and running water. This is between 30 to 40%. These numbers I suspect are actually higher if we're considering the large number of Navajo people who live off reservation in border towns and cities like Albuquerque, which is where I live and where I'm talking to you all tonight from. So there are a number of other factors contributing to higher numbers in native communities beyond the Navajo nation. So the pandemic exposed what were already staggering disparities that native people face in healthcare, education, housing, access to food, income, lack of infrastructure, which includes water, roads, electricity, and internet virtually every socioeconomic index. And this includes, for example, the housing crisis. There's a chronic lack of housing. Um, a large proportion of the unsheltered and houseless population in Albuquerque, where I live, is native. Um, many are Navajo or Dine. There's overcrowding in homes where typically 10 to 15 family members live in a home and constitute a household. Um, there's massive food insecurity in native communities. So just in the U.S. alone, 25% of Native households, and again, this includes often 10 to 15 people per household, are food insecure. And then 15% of available food, particularly in reservation communities, is fresh. Um, the rest is packaged or has a lot of preservatives. Um, in New Mexico, where I live, um, in urban New Mexico, like Albuquerque, Native people, including a huge proportion of Navajo people, have the worst health care of any demographic in the entire country. And again, infrastructure is chronically lacking um, in reservation communities like the Navajo Nation. And I'm an educator. Um, I forgot to introduce myself <laughs> in this way. Um, I'm a professor. I'm an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. Um, I'm also an organizer with the Red Nation. And as an educator, I've seen firsthand the difficulty that Native students have um, because of lack of infrastructure, particularly internet, with being able to continue on with their classes under the conditions of a pandemic. And so the pandemic has also shown, I think, a real disparity in access to education for Native people. But also, uh, you know, the pandemic has delivered a massive blow to revenue from tribal gaming. 
Um, many casinos have rightfully shut down in response to the pandemic to prevent the spread of the virus. Um, it's perhaps a little known fact that native-owned casinos are the 13th largest employer in the entire United States. They employ approximately 650,000, mostly non-native workers. And so casino revenues in poorer counties and cities not only offer jobs to non-native people, uh, most, i.e. Americans, everyday Americans, but they subsidize public goods like education, infrastructure, healthcare, and public safety. And tribal businesses in New Mexico, again, which is where I live, um, contribute significantly to the state's overall GDP. And so in an April 1st HuffPost article entitled, The White House Wanted to Give Zero Dollars to the Tribes in the $2 trillion stimulus bill, congressional aides told HuffPost that Republican lawmakers and White House officials waited until the last minute to give any funds to tribes in the bill and did so only because of intense pressure from tribes and Democratic leadership in Congress. This exemplifies the relationship that exists between tribes and the federal government in the United States. It's often characterized by hostility and neglect. And this is even worse given the fact that economic self-determination is one of the strongest indicators historically of the health and extent of sovereignty that tribes are able to practice. The United States and Canada constantly encroach upon indigenous sovereignty and treat tribes as resource colonies to be mined for the accumulation of wealth elsewhere. And I think that this is made crystal clear by the fact that Alaska Native corporations, many of which were not run by Native people and are in fact run by oil and gas executives, were encouraged to apply for a federal bailout, you know, at the, the cost and the expense of actual tribal, tribal nations in the lower 48 who are receiving a much smaller proportion of funds. So this being the case, um, I believe that support for tribal sovereignty needs to be at the center of our efforts to stop the spread of COVID-19. This is even more important given the Trump administration's efforts in late March to remove Mashpee Wampanoag land from federal trust. Um, I mean, there's massive wide uh, social media um, and news stories about how the Trump administration is doing a horrendous job at responding to COVID-19, um, abandoning everybody, not just native people, but like all American people, and now refusing to provide funding to tribes who employ a huge sector of America's working population. And Trump's earlier efforts to stop Mashpee Wampanoag from achieving federal recognition, which he has been pursuing for 20 years, had to do with the economic challenge their gaming operations posed to his own bottom line as a businessman. And so the Trump administration's uh, motivation today, and it will continue to be so even as tribes battle it out through the lawsuit um, regarding the relief funds, is really about the bottom line. It's about business and the way in which tribes pose a certain kind of threat to the federal government, but, but then also to private interests, whether that has to do with gaming or resource extraction in the United States. And finally, I think that what this speaks to, right, is that the colonial relationship that tribal nations have with our occupying, with the settler nations that occupy, illegally occupy our lands, whether that be the United States or Canada, um, that what this means is that tribes uh, need to pursue international relations and request support from other nations who are not our colonial occupiers. This includes trying to engage in foreign relations with nations like China, yes, Venezuela or Cuba, um, to coordinate support for our tribal members and also for non-native people during this pandemic. Um, and given the Trump administration's hostility toward tribal economic self-determination, this makes sense. So to transition, to talk about these issues tonight, I'm joined by three guests. We're incredibly honored to have you all with us tonight and sharing your work with the world. So our first guest uh, who we'll be hearing from is Jerry Daniels, who's the Grand Chief of the Southern Chiefs Organization, uh, which represents 34 Anishinaabe and Dakota communities in Southern Manitoba. 
and Chief Daniels is a proud member of Long Plain First Nation. And so I'll just introduce all of you and then you can speak in turn if that works for folks. And so our second speaker tonight will be Destiny Morris. Destiny is, and I so apologize for possibly mispronouncing this, Lucha Nuskitskan, um, an Irish. Uh, Destiny is a member of the Red Braid Alliance and has been for three years. She lives with her mother and supports her with uh, her physical disabilities. Destiny is also a part of the Indigenous Leadership Council and writes poetry and is a retail worker at Savers. And finally, we'll hear from Janine Yazi tonight. Janine is the Sustainable Development Coordinator for International Indian Treaty Council. And on behalf of the IITC, she serves as the co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group for Sustainable Development, which engages with the United Nations High-Level Political Forum on the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. She is serving as a volunteer with relief efforts and is the New Mexico team lead for the Navajo, Navajo and Hopi Families COVID Relief Fund. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Chief Daniels, to get started. Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, Melanie, for uh, that introduction, and I want to uh, welcome everyone to the uh, to the panel. And uh, I know everyone is. Uh, uh, been, uh, you know, very concerned with uh, what we've been seeing around the world with COVID-19. Uh, obviously, it adds a lot of uh, a lot of stress and uh, to many of our communities who are have already gone undergone uh, decades of uh, oppression, uh, government policy that has uh, brought us to the margins of the uh, social economic. Uh, uh, when you measure it, uh, a social economic uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, it's been very challenging uh, for us in our region. Uh, I'll just introduce myself. Ogi Mamakwa, Dishnakas, Kaganusti Agdunji, Banasi Dudim, Chimi Gwetcha, Gijimani Tunungum. I thank the Creator for another beautiful day. And uh, I want to thank uh, everyone who's been involved in organizing uh, these series of, of, of discussions. Uh, I just want to get back to. Uh, my role as, as the Grand Chief of the Southern Chiefs Organization, we represent about 30 or um, uh, 90,000 uh, citizens of the Anishinaabe and Dakota Nations, uh, which has been broken into uh, 34. And so that's kind of how it's structured here in, in Southern Manitoba. Uh, we've been working very hard to gain control of uh, a lot of the social spending and policy directions in our region. We have a regional office actually uh, that's uh, housed here in Winnipeg. Uh, they take direction from uh, headquarters in Ottawa. And there's kind of a back and forth depending on the nature of whatever the issue is. Uh, the decisions are either made here in the region or they're made in Ottawa. And that's sort of the structure that we face here. And we could talk, whether we talk about CFS or any issue, healthcare, um, justice, all, all uh, you know, infrastructure in, in our region, it's all really kind of done through that office, regional office. So uh, just to give a bit of context uh, to, to our situation here in Manitoba. Uh, so we have 34 chiefs uh, in our region and each of our communities have uh, engaged in, uh, in, a, in, a, in different, uh, different ways in, um, I guess, uh, flattening the curve, uh, as many have said, uh, when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, we've had communities who have shut down altogether, any in and out. Of the community, uh, we've had uh, you know people who communities who are screening uh, supplies, and so they're bulk buying and screening the supplies uh, that come into the community. 
there's lots of uh, those are like the short term uh, short short term actions that have been taken uh, recently. Obviously, everything's been shut down uh, in our communities, uh, so it's just just bare essentials right now. It's it's really just the essential services as, as everyone's calling it. That's the current operation uh, that we're seeing. Uh, so now we're shifting to planning uh, in the midterm. What are we doing in the midterm and, and, and how, what, what does that look like? Uh, so that's been very, um, uh, there's been different ideas on, on how we're going to uh, uh, transition into, a, into kind of an era of where COVID-19 is gonna exist and uh, how do we work with, 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 with uh, the federal government and then the provincial government? Uh, the challenge here is that the federal government takes uh, a lot of, uh, they take a, a huge role in decisions of financial allocations, also policy as it relates to on reserve. So they, they have a great deal of, uh, uh, of a role in our communities, which is, is a very real terrible situation. Uh, we've always obviously advocated against that. We've always pushed for uh, direct control, uh, community-driven strategies and solutions, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, but uh, but I want to move over to, to just healthcare specifically. Uh, we've uh, been um, working towards uh, uh, what we call health transformation. And what that is is that First Nations on reserve uh, take control of, uh, of their health policy, their health institutions, and the health funding envelopes. So uh, all of the money that basically flows into on-reserve First Nations uh, health, uh, the leadership here in, in, in our region uh, is tasked with uh, structuring and, and, and getting these uh, expertise uh, around all of that. Uh, I know BC has kind of moved in that direction quite a number of years ago. They have a BC Health Authority. Uh, so we're looking at something very similar, uh, and what that is is that uh, we, we, we take over the control and direction for uh, all of southern Manitoba, and then we also provide service for off-reserve. So in BC, uh, there is um, non-First Nations uh, who actually access the services that First Nations are providing through their health authority, so their First Nations Health Authority. So we're looking at those kinds of things. Uh, we took a trip to uh, Cuba not that long ago, uh, actually just in April, uh, we, we headed out there uh, and we had, um, we had uh, discussions with the, with the Minister there of Health. Uh, we met with the Canadian Ambassador to Cuba. Uh, we did tours of all, uh, many of the Cuban uh, facilities, health facilities. We, we went to the school, which is the uh, largest uh, uh, medical school in the world. Uh, we went to their International Cooperation uh, Center uh, and we uh, provided, uh, were provided with uh, a great uh, uh, amount of uh, information around how they've operated and how they focused on prevention rather than, uh, rather than dealing with uh, the issues after, after the, the health uh, the health situation kind of deteriorates uh, in communities or, or in regions. And so, uh, you know, they, they highlighted their work that they, they did in, in South Africa during the Ebola uh, outbreak. And uh, so we, we, for, we, we got into a pretty good uh, relationship with them when we met with the minister. 
uh, we provided uh, some gifts and, 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 and we left with uh, a sense of, uh, you know, a willingness to, to work together. We had three of our chiefs that were there, uh, Chief Batson, uh, Hudson, Chief Hudson and uh, Ledoux and also Chief Kent, four of our chiefs, sorry. And all of those chiefs were interested in having doctors from Cuba come into their communities. And uh, right now we're talking about, okay, well, if we're going to get a health envelope and we're gonna structure a health system in our communities, how can we maximize those resources? And in Canada and, and elsewhere around the world, there, we see instances where, you know, you only have so much uh, health resources. And what we wanted to do is if we could work with a, with a, a country uh, who is uh, recognized as a leader around the world, could we get a better return on our investment than what we would get here in Canada? And that's, that's basically what, uh, what we pose to Canadian officials. Uh, we, that's, that, that, and that's what we state to the Canadian broader society is that, uh, you know, if we can get uh, a good level of care and we can see a change in the health outcomes in our communities by working with Cuba, then uh, that's the direction that we should take. And maybe all of Canada should start looking at uh, that sort of a process. And we see that uh, around the world in different industries where uh, uh, resources, uh, you know, uh, human expertise, like professional expertise uh, is, is, uh, is brought in uh, to countries to help uh, with engineering, you know, like things like that, buildings, uh, all kinds of uh, projects. Uh, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a far ways to go to say, okay, well, maybe we can bring in health professionals uh, from, a, from, uh, from, a, from a different country. Uh, in First Nations, we have a great, well, at least here in our region, uh, we have a great deal of um, difficulty keeping nurses in our communities, some of our isolated communities. And uh, we wanted to see, okay, well, if we brought in uh, health doctors and health nurses, one doctor and nurse per community, uh, you know, we would look at the costs, obviously, associated with that. What would the impact be uh, for the community? And because we're taking control of the resources, uh, perhaps we would get a better return on investment. Perhaps the uh, the outcomes would be better. So that's why we focused on on, on Cuba, or w why we really uh, pushed it uh, and 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 made a drew a lot of attention as much as we could uh, to that eventual, hopefully that eventual reality. And we had communities who were already engaging uh, with doctors from Cuba to bring them to their communities. So we wanted to broaden that and to have uh, perhaps all of our communities, if not at least half of our communities have doctors and perhaps send some of our students to the Cuban medical school uh, and, and to see what kind of impact that would be. And, and even if it was 20 or 30 to 50% of our allocation, uh, of our financial allocation, if we could get a better return on that and we see better outcomes in those communities, then I think that's a good thing for us. And that's what we focused on. We didn't get into the uh, global uh, political environment around Cuba and the United States. We really just focused on the issue and trying to create better outcomes for our people. That was, that's our role. That's what the chiefs ask us to do. That's what our people in our communities ask us to do. You know, to, to take away all of this, other, all of these other things and to, and to help make our communities better. And so that's what we focused on and we're continuing. Right, and sorry to cut this off. Um, we are running a little bit out of time here. Not necessarily running out of time. Let's say that the show has a certain two hour bracket here and there's a little bit more that we wanna get to. And definitely interested in hearing more. So again, if you follow the Red Nation on YouTube, I am subscribing right now. 
um, you can check out the rest of this video. It's uh, Friday Night Forums 2, COVID-19 in Indian Country with Jerry Daniels, Destiny Morris, and Yanin Yazzie. And something, th there's always like a lot going on <laughs> in the world. That's an understatement. And perhaps if you have been a listener of the show for a while, there are certain times when I'm invested in certain news stories and and it's not to say that other things aren't happening it's more just not necessarily and nor is it saying that like anything is more immediate than the other it's more just that's how our attention spans are and um so i don't want to downplay other things that are that are currently happening in the world and something i i wanted to get to in the previous weeks and did not um and i apologize for that the police are still out fucking harassing people and killing people and arresting people who shouldn't be arrested so wanting to, to note that, that that has not changed, and um, I did want to uh, share some info from the Anti-Police Terror Project, and folks can follow them if you go to APTP or type that in, Anti-Police Terror Project. Find more information of ways to support, and there have been protests that are happening. And this is one event that happened, uh, Justice for Stephen Taylor. And so last Saturday, Anti-Police Terror Project's Ride for Justice for Stephen Taylor drew hundreds. Stephen Taylor, a 33-year-old black father of three, was shot to death by a San Leandro police officer as he struggled with a mental health crisis in a local Walmart. Demonstrators practiced social distancing from their vehicles adorned with signs that read Justice for Stephen and Compassion Not Cops as they caravaned, circling the Walmart park parking lot, chanting and honking horns. Afterwards, uh, they headed to San Leandro Police Department. Cars spanned the distance of several blocks in front of the apartment on East 14th Street and brought traffic to a standstill on side streets surrounding the station in a noise protest that was difficult for passers-by to ignore. And they share a video as well that has um, some really meaningful images on there. And so you can check that out. It's on YouTube. Uh, in the past two and a half weeks alone, five people have been fatally shot by police in the Bay Area. This recent recent upsurge in police violence doesn't exist in a vacuum. It can't be understood without considering the crushing psychological impacts of this global pandemic. Up to 50% of the people killed by law enforcement are in the middle of a mental health crisis. Law enforcement agencies are not equipped to handle these calls. They don't have adequate training, and many of them don't want the job. These officer-involved shootings result in unnecessary deaths, trauma, and pain, and those that are killed are disproportionately black. At Saturday's caravan, participants noted that even in videos of Stephen Taylor's death, shoppers can be heard pleading with police not to shoot him and trying to protect Stephen by talking him down. These did not sound like people who felt that Stephen was a threat. After Stephen was shot, someone can even be heard screaming, don't shoot him. San Leandro police claim they are undergoing an impartial review of the shooting and that Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley will be completing an independent investigation. They also claim that they will provide updates to the community and those impacts by this officer-involved shooting in a timely manner. Meanwhile, the San Leandro Police Department has still not released the police report to the family of Guadalupe Manzo Ochoa, killed in 2014 by SLPD. Six years to review a police report is not, in fact, timely to family and community members concerned with police misconduct and the death of a loved one. The families of Guadalupe and Stephen deserve better. Onward together in the fight for justice. Solidarity calls to action. Oakland Sin Fronteras will be hosting a virtual forum for International Workers' Day 2020, which is today. Their annual march and rally will be postponed until Labor Day, September 7th. 
This virus has shown both the importance of workers and their power, but also the vulnerability when we are not organized to leverage our collective power and the need for us to unite. What Worker Sees Power Virtual International Workers Day, which is happening today, Friday, at 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., so happening about an hour from now. It's online. You can register at the link um, they provide. You can find more information at APTP. Uh, information will be provided in Spanish, Arabic, Tagalog, and Cantonese, and there will be closed captioning and ASL interpretation. The webinar will provide the opportunity for folks to receive updates on resources and laws to support our community around housing, health, and labor during this pandemic. There will also be a panel to highlight current fights being waged for justice in detention centers, prisons around labor and housing to lift up the value of all people who this system continuously attempts to dispose of. On Friday, April 24th, officers with the Oakland Police Department profile detained and arrested two volunteers of the village in Oakland as they were arriving to the Oakland, East Oakland Collective's parking lot for a meeting. These essential outreach were volunteers were providing life-saving services to unsheltered residents and moving vulnerable people into hotel rooms funded by community donations. There are currently thousands of unsheltered people in Oakland, over 70% of whom are black. The few, few hundred hotel rooms currently provided by Alameda County are vastly insufficient to protect the lives of our most vulnerable residents. Meanwhile, the city of Oakland has provided zero hotel rooms. Call Mayor Libby Schaff at 510-238-3141 and demand that the city immediately provide hotel rooms for every unhoused person who wants one. The mayor's authority to do so is outlined in Oakland Municipal Code 8.50.050, which authorizes the city administrator to commandeer properties for the protection of life.